You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Jeremy McCauley titled, How to Study a Bible Passage, from the series, 40 Days in the Word. For more info, visit creekside.org. This morning, I, I want to give you, well, I, I don't know if this is the right way to say this. I want to give you the privilege of inviting you into my living room. And we're going to just declare this my living room this morning. Um, the reason I say that is what I get to talk on today, the, the reason why it's so fun is I've probably taught it a hundred times to different people sitting in my living room asking me a question and saying, I don't get anything when I read the Bible. I get nothing out of it. How am I supposed to get anything out of this? And I say what I'm about to tell you. So we're going to spend this morning, you're coming into my living room, we're just going to sit down and enjoy some coffee. Some of you might have brought food. And we're going to talk through how do we get stuff out of the Bible? How do we get it? And like I said, I've probably given this talk a hundred times because a lot of people wonder, how do I get something out? And the fun part was, as I looked at this, as I got to part four of 40 Days in the Word, I went, hey, this is exactly what I tell people over and over again. This is the way you get stuff out of your Bible. This is what we do. You just have to read it and ask a few questions. It's really that simple. This morning as we get there, part of the problem that we have, I know, is that we read books and a lot of times we get nothing out of them. Or we skip parts. Um, my wife, when we read novels together, and sometimes we'll, we'll read novels together, she's reading all of the words, like the conversations. And I'm reading all the details that go on behind that. And it took me a long time to figure it out because I was really frustrated at how slow I was compared to her. But then I'd ask her something that happened in the book and she'd go, oh, I didn't notice that part. And the best example of this isn't actually one that I had with her, but it's one that I notice all the time. And that's reading the book, The Hunt for Red October. Anybody read it? Okay, everybody at least seen the movie? Okay, probably, I'm just probably getting old now, right? People don't see the, the... So, The Hunt for Red October. Red October is a Soviet missile submarine. And it carries, I think, 46 nuclear missiles. And, and uh, this Russian commander, he gets it, and he decides he's going to defect with the submarine. Okay, so that's the basis of the whole movie right there, the whole book. The thing is, is when it came out, there was all sorts of, of hubbub, really, about how much information Tom Clancy had when he wrote this and the details he was able to pour in about naval procedures and the different ways that they do this because a lot of things happened. The Russians, he tells the Russians that he's defecting, and so they're chasing him across the Atlantic. And the Americans, the Russians, tell them that he's actually going to come and launch nuclear weapons, so they're coming out to fight him and all these things are happening and there's this great story that's going on in the middle of this story in the middle of one of the chapters and I don't even think it was a full chapter it talks about one of the Russian commanders and his sub is chasing Red October across the the Atlantic and the the closest they get to this in the movie is they say that they're putting down so many sonar buoys in the Atlantic that you could walk from England to Newfoundland and never have to get your feet wet it's a navy joke anyway so the the point is there's so much stuff out there and all they're doing is running to see if they can catch him or get in front of him and one of the russian subs it tells a story about their commander and he knows he's not going fast enough oh i forgot to tell you <laughs> little details the new nuclear sub that they're defecting with it's perfectly silent it's engineered to not make any noise, or at least not normal noise, the noise that you would normally hear when you heard a sub go by. And there's all kinds of great technical details that an engineer like me just loves in the book about how they do this and, and how they can hear subs and what they can hear. But anyway, so they're chasing this sub and they can't find it. So all they're going to do is drive it across, get in front of him, and have him pop up where they're already waiting for him. One of the subs is chasing him, and the, the captain knows he's not going fast enough, so he's telling his engineer, drive it to 110%. Drive it to 115%. They're pushing the nuclear reactor on their submarine beyond what it's supposed to be. For any of you who ever wonder what the little red lines are on the RPM gauge in your car, that's what this story's all about. So they drive this engine, and the, the guy tells him, do it harder, do it harder. 
and something goes drastically wrong. And the nuclear reactor goes into critical. The safety features don't work. Something was broken. It fails. The nuclear reactor eventually gets so hot that it literally melts through the concrete and steel side of the submarine. Loss of all hands on board, loss of the vessel, loss of everything. Because they were pushing so hard. How many of you have read that book and how many of you remember that scene? See, this is where it gets a lot smaller. You see, most people don't even notice it. Most people have read that book, they've noticed the incredible story that's around it, but this was just, it's just a little bit. And really, it's not a central part even that reaches into the theme. It's so superfluous, it didn't even make it into the movie. And I think most of the time when we're reading the Bible, we have the exact same problem. We're sitting there and we're drinking in so much that when we get to the end, we go, I have no idea what I just looked at. What we want to do today is slow it down and try and figure out how can we actually get something out of God's Word. And the simple answer is that it doesn't take more time. It's going to take less. It takes us slowing down and saying, I'm only going to look at a chapter a day. I'm going to take 15 minutes, and I'm going to go through one chapter. And I'm going to ask some simple questions. You see, the reason this part stuck out to me is uh, the Hunt for Red October was I am fascinated by the technical engineering that went behind that. I'd always wondered how those, how those safety systems worked, how you would engineer things like a nuclear reactor underwater in a boat, whether that was a good idea or not. Those questions were answered for me, and so it stuck in my head. Whereas for most of us, yeah, man, there's no dialogue, nothing to read there, nothing that interesting. So today as we get into this, we're going to look at the fact that anyone can study the Bible. Anyone. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Everyone else can read it and see what it says. It'll be clearer to us who know who God is, but still there, we can read it. To recap where we've been, we started three weeks ago. This is week four of, day, of um, 40 days in the Word. This is week four out of six. We started four, three weeks ago with inspiration, the fact that God literally breathed the Bible, through men, onto paper. He protected it. He took care of it. He made sure that it had everything in it still that it had when he first wrote it down to make sure that you and I wouldn't have to go through and say, boy, there's pieces just missing. I have to guess what God wants. We can look and we can prove it. We can show it. Then we went from inspiration, we looked at foundation. Literally, why would God write this thing? Why did God give us the Bible? What was he planning? What was he looking at? What did he know he, we needed to, need, to have? And why would he pour this out? This incredible God who's literally doing things that we would view as crazy, pouring out his love upon us and caring enough to tell us so that we don't miss it. We went from there last week and we looked at illumination, how God will light up the Bible and tell us the things he wants us to know and make sure that we get it. And today we're going to look at observation. Just, hey, how do we look and see what it says? What's in there for us to get? Today we're going to answer the simple question that I know all of you struggle with every day. How can I get to be like Jeremy? <laughs> How can I know as much about the Bible as that guy on stage? And it's not just that I have this cool shirt and the boots and my little, my little goatee for the day. It is just probably for the day. And, but the question really is, how do we get to know what God's told us? How do we get so familiar with the Bible? And I'll tell you, I got a little jump start from going to seminary. But really, if you ask me how I know so much about the Bible, I'll tell you it's one chapter a day. It's my worst kept secret. One chapter a day. 
Over 20 years of being a Christian, at one chapter a day, I've read through the Bible an equivalent of seven times. Can you imagine if you've read the Bible seven times how well you'd know it? I can tell you, by about the fourth time, things start looking a little familiar. The first few, eh, the stuff's all strange. It's all new. But as I was going through, it would become more and more consistent. Some of the names sound familiar. Hey, I've heard of this person before. One chapter a day. One chapter a day is what it takes And one chapter a day is what I challenge everyone who comes into my living room and asks that exact same question of how do I know what the Bible has to say for myself? How do I get that information? All right, so as we step in, the main thing that we have to learn today is four simple questions. And we're going to step through those questions. I'll tell you them up ahead of time. I didn't do that for the last group, but I want to make sure you know. We always ask, what does it say? What does it mean? Does it fit? And what does it mean to me? And really, these two kind of go together, right? What does it fit is really, does it really mean what I think it means? So what does it say? What does it mean? Does it fit? And what does it mean to me? We're going to step through those four questions, and I will freely admit those are the four questions we're using because what we're looking at is what God is teaching us each day. There are different things that we could study. We could study, hey, we want to know about Paul, and we want to know his personal interactions. We would actually ask different questions. But when we're doing a daily Bible study, when we're trying to figure out what God has written to us, these are the four questions that we ask over and over again. They're simple, they're easy to remember, which I like, thankfully, and they bring about the answers that we want. Today we're going to pick a passage out of Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, please open it. It's really difficult to study the Bible without the Bible, okay? It's just kind of our first step. What does it say requires that we can look at it? So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is a book written by Paul. It's actually a letter written by Paul to a church in Philippi. It's a thank you note. Anybody ever written a thank you note before? That's all right. The kids all say no over here. No. Anybody? We know you get to. Anyway, the, the, the truth is, this is Paul. The church in Philippi sent him a gift, and he is writing back to say, thank you for your gift. Now, along the way, Paul throws in a few extra things. He's got some teaching that he wants to make sure that, that he covers some incredible joy that he has in following God and, and knowing who Jesus is. And so he brings those things in too. Paul needed a gift because he's sitting in prison. Now, when we talk about prison ministries in churches, usually we mean we're going to go into the prison and we're going to minister to people, but then we get to come back out. For Paul, Paul's prison ministry was this. They locked him up in prison in Rome, and Paul went, I can lead a church from here. And he did. He wrote letters to various churches that we have. He wrote um, different descriptions. He talked to people. He converted the, the palace guard and other servants who would come in. He converted the prisoners. He'd teach it, and then he would lead the church through the people that would come in and out of the room that he was in. That's the kind of prison ministry Paul looked at. He, he said, Whew, for once in my life, I can run this ministry without having to worry about getting stoned for doing it. All from inside the prison. He looked at it as freedom, as a chance to do what he didn't have time to do at other times. So we're going to pick up, we're going to read Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 19. In verse 19, um, I had this picked for me. And I like the fact that they picked this because as you're reading through chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 1 through 18 are like deep theology. There's probably the first hymn of the church is in chapter 2 verse 1. It's gorgeous about how Jesus was humble and the way that he served. And then you get to, the, to verse 19 and you just kind of sit there and go, oh, this must be Paul writing that thank you part of the thank you note. But when I think about thank you notes that I wrote as a kid... Dear Aunt Jane, thank you for the socks. Yes, I've had a great day. 
and you finish it, right? You put the thank you at the beginning and at the end. Thank you, Jeremy. On the end of every one of my emails, it says thank you, Jeremy, because people actually you know, have to do the things sometimes that I write in there, or otherwise they just had to listen to me. So thank you, Jeremy. You put those usually at the end or the beginning. And the problem we run into is Paul's writing this in the middle. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it beyond just a simple greeting that Paul's asking, writing, or a simple thank you that he put? So let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter 2 of Philippians, and this is what it says. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I, hear, when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you can be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we seek to study your word and look at what you have here, I pray, Lord, that you just help us, impress us with the simplicity, with the joy, and with how much you have, even in, in uh, small passages like this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the danger here is actually looking at this and saying, hey, this is just really Paul saying this is thankful. But what we want to do is look and see what he's writing about. Why is he writing about these men? And so, like I said, our first question is going to be, what did it say? Now, this is not meant to be difficult. When we ask, what did it say, I mean, what did it say? And we're going to walk through and we're going to look at what Paul is writing here. So let's like, oh, by the way, uh, you might read it several times when you read it. Just so you know, this isn't the first time I read that passage this week, right? I read it numerous times coming up. You also might read it in other versions. Now, that brings out the question of translations. Some of you have different translations than I do. I have a, and this is crazy, but I have the 1984 version of the New International Version because you can buy a newer version, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, find one you can read. Years and years ago, I was working with my first group of junior hires, and I had had a young man, and he came to me, and he said, I get nothing out of the Bible when I read it. We were having this conversation then. And I said, okay, so what version do you read it in? He goes, well, my dad makes me read from the, new, the original King James Version. And I, I am forced to read it an hour a day, and I still get nothing out of it. I said, um, just curious, when you read the original King James Version, how many of those words do you actually know? He's like, well, we don't exactly use any of those in school. Probably 60, 70% of it was a foreign language to him. God's word is not brought to you as something that you can't understand. God has given us this version, this word in English, and he drew, they update it because 30 years ago even, the words that were common in our culture are not common in what we do use today. So I encourage you, go find a translation that you can read. Find one that you like. Current versions that are out there, there's bunches of them. But the New Living Translation, NLT, is very common. The ESV or English Standard Version is another very common one. You can find bunches of them on the internet. Make sure that you find one that's actually a translation. And I mean, we had one where I could write in what I thought it meant. I'm like, well, what if... You know, Joe Blow, Joe Cool decides he's going to write in what he thinks it meant. They say, yeah, we'll include that too. Like, okay, that's, that might be a little too open. 
But there are Bibles that have incredible amounts of scholarly backing and that you can read and the words make sense to you. Find one. Take the time. It's worth it. Then, while you're going through it, take notes. The passage isn't that long. Get yourself a piece of paper. Like Rick Warren says, the difference between reading and studying is the fact that you write something down. Some of us have incredible memories. It's probably still better to write things down. Some of us only learn from writing things down and seeing them on paper. And if we don't do it, we don't take in the information. So take the time to take notes. Here's some things that I noticed as I went through here. We got Paul, and he's planning on getting rid of Timothy, or he's planning on sending him to Philippi. Not getting rid of him, obviously. Not going to knock him off or anything. He's also planning on sending Epaphroditus. But as I go through this, I go, wow, he's going to send these two men. But as I read it, it sure sounds like he likes them. Why is he letting them go? What's he doing? And that was the second thing that I would notice is that Paul actually values these men. At the end, in verse 29, it says, Welcome him, talking about Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him. That, that should probably step out to me. What's it take to be a man that Paul wants, wants honored? What's it take to be somebody who's valuable, a role model? Why is it that Paul puts the words like him for both Timothy, he says, I have no one like him, you might want to circle that, and for Epaphroditus, honor men who are like him. What's it take to be like him? And so I might go back through and read it again. Oh, did I mention you might read it several times? You might read it several times just in taking notes. You could read it in different translations to see the different words that are used. We'll come back to that even more later. So if I go back through here and I look and I say, okay, what is it that God says is special about these guys? that's worthy of emulation, worthy of following. Here's what I might notice. He says of Timothy in verses 20 and 21, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Timothy's interest in other people. Okay, I'd write that down. In verse 22, you know that Timothy has proved himself. Maybe I want to know what that looks like. Skip down to verse 25, and it talks about Epaphroditus as Paul's says, he is my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. Notice, so far, all we're doing is writing down what it says. First question, what does it say? I don't have to make it up. I don't have to add anything. I don't have to wonder if I know what I'm talking about. We're just putting down words that are already here. Verse 26, he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. I probably want to figure out what he's talking about there. And finally, in verse 27 through 30, indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. Skipping down to verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. That gets me through all of it all the characteristics that these two men have and what they're showing. And, and I will tell you, by the way, there's lots of information in this passage. I can go back and I can say, okay, what is Paul doing in this passage? Talk about his trial, the fact that he's trying to figure out if he's going to be free. He's pretty hopeful, which is pretty cool. He's willing to let go of some, some specific workers. But if I just ask and I look at what he's doing to me, what jumped out was these two men. And these two men who have incredible, specific things stated about them and who they are, and Paul's statement to be like them. So that takes us from the observation of what does it say to the interpretation of what does it mean. Everything, in case you don't know this, everything that gets written down is written for a purpose. It has meaning. When you watch a movie, it's got a meaning, whether you notice it or not. They're teaching you something. When God wrote these words, he knew that he wanted to teach you something with these passages. So when we go from what does it say to what does it mean, we're just trying to figure out 2,000 years ago, why did Paul write this? 
What was the meaning behind it? It seems simple, but this is probably the longest part of what you'll do because you're really going to have to, you know, look at it and go, well, you know, who cares? Why do these things matter? I don't know about you guys. I listen to uh, contemporary Christian music, and I listen to a lot of Toby Mac right now. That's the CD that's in my car that's got a heavy beat and keeps me going on the way to and from work. Toby Mac raps. It's almost all rap, a little bit of hip-hop, but mostly rap. And, and you have to decipher the lyrics. And what I've learned is most of his lyrics are actually metaphors. Now, I'll, get you, I'll give you a clue on this. The hard part is... There's two sides to that. What I realized as I was writing that down, that, they, that his lyrics are metaphors, I went, that means I figured out what he's saying first. And there are a lot of times where I'm sitting going, speak English, Toby. Please tell me words that I can understand. But there's a lot of times where I finally figure out the words and I have to figure out what it means when he says, hey, we'll have a fat cup of bean and a wide open mind. Now, for a guy who doesn't drink coffee, that's really difficult to understand. No, he's talking about sitting and having coffee and a spiritual discussion with his friend. And he wants his friend to show up in a way where he's interested and available to everything that God has for him. His friend's response is, man, that's heavy. If you remember the old Back to the Future movie, Doc Brown makes a hilarious joke every time Marty McFly says, this is getting heavy. He says, there's that word again, heavy. Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravity in the future? It's great science pun. But really, the reality is, that word means nothing. A fat cup of bean in 100 years, people are going to be like, man, these people were weird. It's getting heavy. No, it's not getting any, any heavier than before. It's just like normal. No, he means he's going to go deep. They're going to talk about stuff. And his friends realize, well, we're, we're really going deeper than we normally have. We're going to talk about stuff. There are a lot of times where we look at the Bible and we go, could you just speak English? And here's a clue. A hundred, no, I guess it's 400 years ago now. 400 years ago, there weren't any English Bibles. You would be sitting there going, it's all in Latin, and I'm supposed to figure it out in English. We actually have the ability to read it in English. All right, so let's look at the five things that we had, and, and I'm gonna, um, we'll go through them, and we'll look at what it says as we went through the five things that we saw that Paul wrote down about these men. The first one he writes in verse 21 is about Timothy. Remember, it says, I have no one like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He goes on in verse 22 to explain it. He said, or in verse 21, he, sorry, that was verse 20. In verse 21, he goes on and says, for everyone looks out for his own interests and not for those of Jesus Christ. And when I think of it that way, when I think of just those two verses, I think, well, no kidding. You see, what Paul is saying is, I have no one like Timothy who cares about you more than he cares about himself. Everybody else around me is here for their own good. Even Paul struggled with that. I think no kidding because that's definitely the way it is now. I spend my life around people who are worried about themselves are worried about what they can accomplish, the neat things they have done. Not about the needs or the cares of Jesus Christ. Paul points out and says, this is important. The funny part is in the, in the actual Greek, there's actually no word for interests. It's just they care for their own. Their own interests, their own self their own glory. Paul points out that it's rare to find a man and even a person who is caring. Now, I am going to land on all seas today, just so you know. That didn't happen in the first 15 minutes of reading this. I do run into it and go, whew, that's nice when you can hit an ac acrostic or, or all things that are repetitive so that they make more sense and are easier to remember. As we look through Philippians 2, we're going to land on a lot of seas, and you'll go, ooh, neat. So first C is caring. Paul points to a man who is caring and says, be like him. 
The fun thing was reading through this and, and getting ready for it, Rick Warren actually has a thing he talks about. Um, he made a list of 10 characteristics of a selfish person. And he's specifically talking, I couldn't resist it. I had to make sure I brought it in. He says, I'm specifically talking to the single women today. I want to protect you. So I've made a list of how to identify a selfish man before it's too late. This is good for all of us, but it's good. You might want to write this down, or you can buy this tape, CD, catch it online. How do you identify a selfish man before it's too late? Number one, does he only talk about himself? That's a sign. Number two, does he ever open the door for you? Now, I know that, you know, that's kind of out of vogue today, but, you know, really, sometimes people need the door open for them. And I'm not just saying ladies, although we should, gentlemen, open the door for ladies. Sometimes when, you know, a guy's carrying a big pile of stuff, if you open the door, it's kind of nice. Number three, has he ever brought you a meal because he knew you were too busy to eat and he sensed it and you didn't have to tell him? Kind of switching. This, that's a caring person who's more interested in just more interested in you than just his own agenda? Does he ever go out of his way to make sure you feel safe? Does he ever ask for your opinion on anything? Love the on anything. Does he ever ask you for sex? If he says, if you love me, you'll let me, you say, if you love me, you'll wait. And by the way, women, you need to understand this. Women need a reason for sex. Men just need a place. That's just the way we're wired. <clears throat> you need to understand that. So if he asks you for sex, he's a loser. And if you say no and he pouts, he's a double loser. Run the other way. Number seven, nice little commentary. Number seven, will he cancel his plans if you're sick so he can take care of you? That's an unselfish man. Is he obsessed with his appearance? Will he do something that he doesn't like to do just to be able to spend more time with you? That's an unselfish man. And finally, number 10, does he pick up his messes or expect you to pick them up for him? Now, you're not supposed to elbow the person next to you. This is just a list, things to think about. Might be too late for you. It's okay. Paul specifically points to somebody who is caring as being worthy of our emulation, worthy of following. The next thing he says about Timothy in verse 22, he says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. And I have to ask, what does it mean to be proved? Some of us spend our lives, and I spent especially my life before I was a Christian and much living into my Christian, trying to figure out how do I measure up to being a good enough Christian? How do I do enough things? How do I read the Bible enough times? How do I follow well enough to be good enough and be proven that people will trust and say, yeah, this is where I've gotten to? When do I know I've reached the well-done, good and faithful servant line? Paul says, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy actually had a time where he has served in his past and he has shown himself to be faithful, to be dependable. These people have seen it. Paul has seen it. Paul is bringing it back and talking about it because he is worthy of being pointed to as having been consistent. That's a C. Consistent with his life. He has consistently shown that this is actually important to him. And it leads me to the personal question of what's important enough for me to be consistent about? You see, I get the title of rocket scientist because of what I do at work, but honestly, I would not die for the title of being a rocket scientist. It's fun, it gets me a free pass to go talk certain places, I get to do neat stuff, but it's not something to die for. One of the things I love about my job is if I mess it up, nobody's dead. I don't kill people with what I do but I don't save people with what I do either. There are things in my life that I am willing to die for. There are things that are more important to me than anything can make me change on. God's word is that valuable to me. Ministering and working and talking to people and showing them God's love is that valuable to me. 
It's what makes me consistent. It's what always brings me back to something real. No matter how many times I trip and mess up, I have a guideline that brings me back. So God's man or woman is caring, they're consistent. And then in verse 25, he said this, I'm sending back Epaphroditus, no, not everybody can say these words, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Those things stood out. Why do they call him? Why does he call him those things? Why does he call him a brother? Well, obviously, he's there working with him. He's a Christian alongside of him. He's a fellow worker. In other words, he's doing the same kind of work. But why does Paul go the next step and say a fellow soldier? I don't think Epaphroditus is running around in armor. I don't think Paul was either. That's why the stonings were so difficult. Epaphroditus isn't running around in armor, but Paul knows. When the going gets tough, when this message is hard to proclaim, Epaphroditus is going to be next to me. If I end up down in the trenches, by the way, down in the trenches is one of those metaphors that not everybody's going to ever understand again. When I'm down in the trenches, Epaphroditus will be with me. The kind of work we do, the kinds of things that we do, he is right alongside, cooperating working with me no matter what. That's the kind of man Paul's pointing out, a cooperative man, one who sees a task that needs to be done and gathers along with those who are doing it and works on it. In verse 26, he goes on to say, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And, you know, half of me wants to bounce over this just because it's all emotional terms, right? But the other half of me goes, wait a minute. Paul stopped long enough to write about how much somebody cared about somebody else's discomfort. You got to think about this. It's because he almost died. Okay, so here's what happened. These guys in Philippi, they took an offering. So let's say I said, today we're going to take an offering. We're all going to put all of our money in a pile right here. And it's, it's not going to be small money. And by the way, we can't send checks. So what I need is I need somebody to volunteer. And you're going to walk 800 miles to deliver this gift that we have. Everybody ready to go? Maybe only a couple. Thank you, Caleb. So... <laughs> You're going to walk 800 miles, and you're going to give up everything else that you have and go. Epaphroditus steps forward and says, I'll do it. He takes it, and on the way, he gets sick. He gets so sick on the way that he almost dies. Like, not a little sick. He comes down with something heinous. He gets stuck, laid up. He almost dies, finally recovers, and goes forward. What Paul's talking about is the people in Philippi heard that he was sick and they are so worried about him that they're asking and their worry gets back to him. He's actually worried about the fact that they're worried about him being sick because he was sick for something for them. He's talking about somebody who cares enough about the feelings of others for it to affect who they are. He's considerate or compassionate. Look, two season one. He's considerate of what's going on, of how it works. He is distressed by their distress. God's looking for people who care and notice. So we've gone through being caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and the final one is in verses 27 through 30. It says, Indeed, he was ill and almost died. And then we're going to skip down again to verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. How many people will risk their lives for, them, for somebody else? You see, most of the time what we see is we see people risking their lives for their own accomplishment, risking their business, working hard to get somewhere or to get something. I'm willing to do this so that I have a six-pack. Yeah, I don't have that. Um, 
I'm willing to do this so that my business gets better, so that I can say I did something. I have a coworker who does death rides. I don't know if any of you have heard this, but he goes up into the Sierras and he'll ride over 100 miles on his bicycle over the five highest peaks in what we call the California Alps. It's called a death ride for a reason. But it doesn't do anything. It's not even a charity event. It's for him to say, I've done it. I can do that. Now, he's not terribly prideful. Like, he didn't sit there and go, I am so awesome. But what else do you do this for to show that I can accomplish something? Epaphroditus, just to give you an idea, this guy wasn't a vagrant. He's a man with a family and a life who left his business to go on a trip to deliver a gift and minister for Jesus Christ. He put everything down in order to do that and made the distance and the difficult call to go there. The things that he did weren't for his own benefit. They were for the benefit of the ministry, for the benefit of other people, and he almost died doing it. He risked his life, put himself in a hazardous situation, He was courageous beyond belief for someone else. You see, the things that we do that are difficult, running marathons, doing death rides, yes, they can show us and they can train us to endure and to keep going. And the challenge is to then focus that endurance and say, how am I going to endure for Jesus? How am I going to be courageous? Because what we notice as we read through the Bible, is that doing the impossible, doing what everybody else says is too difficult, doing the things that risk our lives is what Christians have been doing for over 2,000 years since Jesus Christ did exactly the same thing when he risked his life, came on this earth, and lived and died for us. This is what we do. We live a courageous existence. These are the five marks of being a man or woman of God that is worthy of being followed, worthy of being emulated, worthy of being looked at. It's the kind of person God blesses, uses, puts power into, endorses. It's the kind of person every single one of us should want to be. Even if it's not all in C's, and yeah, I made made them all C's, in case you're checking, Probably some of you are looking back now to look. Okay, so we went through two questions already. The first question was, what does it say? The second question is, what does it mean? The third question we have to ask is, does it fit? Now, this is to protect us. You've all heard, it's, a, it's an old cliche of the guy who's he's really struggling, he doesn't know what to do, he knows he's messed up, and so he flips open the Bible, and, and by the way, I know some of you have been like, totally spoken to, but you still have to make sure when God speaks to you because you only look at one passage, is it consistent with what he says? But he flips to the Bible, flips open a passage, and he looks at it, and he lands on Matthew 27, 5, and it says, Judas went and hanged himself. He says, well, God, that's not really all that exciting. So he flips forward a little bit. He gets to Luke chapter 10, verse 37, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. Um, maybe I'll check with somebody else before I do it, but I'm going to give it one more shot. And so he flips forward to John 13, 27, where Jesus says, what you do, what you are about to do, go and do it quickly. (laughs) In case you ever wonder, God's purpose for you is never to end your life. God values you, He finds you to be incredibly important, incredibly powerful, and he made you to be that way. Everything we read, everything we come up with should be consistent with everything else in the Bible. God doesn't change. And I'm not saying there aren't things in here we should struggle with. I'm saying people have struggled with them and arrived at the conclusion over and over again that God is exactly who he says he is, a loving and compassionate God 
slow to anger and abounding in love. That's who we're looking at. When you get lost, look and see if it's consistent. Where else might we look at this? We're talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus from Philippians chapter 2. Hey, we might read the rest of the book of Philippians. It just so happens Epaphroditus comes back up in chapter 4. If we want to read about Timothy, um, maybe there's these two books called First and Second Timothy. Right? We're not going to read all these books today. I'm just going to show you there are things we can go and look at to get background. Timothy comes up in Acts, right? The, the history of the early church. Timothy's historical context comes up in Acts 16 and 17, where all of a sudden this guy named Timothy is working with Paul. Hey, maybe that's why Paul knows him. All of these things are things we can check whether or not they fit, whether or not they work. It's not a surprise. It's not something different. Then you might decide, hey, I don't understand some of these words well enough, so I want to look up one of these words, and I want to know everywhere that it's done in the, in the Bible. That's what the brick's for. This is an exhaustive concordance. Notice concordance starts with C2. Um, I think that's pretty cool. An exhaustive concordance literally has every word that's in your Bible listed out for how it work, where it is and where it's used. So I can take the word proven, and I can go right here. It's right before Proverbs, and it's right, yeah, right up there. And the cool part about proven is there's only four of them. So I might actually look up all four of those verses. I might just read them out of here because half of the verse is there, and I might know it well enough to be able to figure it out. With this, you can actually go through and figure out how a word was used, how it was translated in other ways. It's my personal opinion that every Bible study should have one of these. Notice I'm not saying that's a biblical fact. That is my personal opinion. Because you can find so much. And if nobody will pay attention to you, you can always do that. And everybody looks. <laughs> Biggest book on the shelf. It might as well be there. So... There are so many ways for us to go through and make sure that what we're reading is consistent, to make sure that as we look at the purposes and the, the personality traits that God has put into this, that they're consistent with what he calls us to be. I might look up how to be proven, what it means to be caring, consistent, cooperative. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are in the current millennium and you don't like paper products, <clears throat> we have these online. I recommend you get one because I love books, but not everybody shares my love of books, and some of you just carry these little, you know, pocket computers. If you go to BibleGateway.com, there are a number of these places, but BibleGateway.com will search every word in the Bible for you. And the fun part about doing it on computer is you can say, I can search for two words at the same time and see where they come together. It will list numerous, numerous variations, different translations, different ways things were used. It's amazing. This is like the cheat sheet, and that's like the electronic cheat sheet. And yes, it's okay for you to cheat when we look at the Bible. The only person who doesn't need one of these, whether it be it in electronic or paper form, is somebody who has memorized every word in the Bible and can recall it with perfect clarity. Whew, that's everyone. See, there we go. So that's what a concordance is. It's a tool. It's something for us to use. It's great stuff. In case you feel bad about reading the Bible, in case you come in here and you go, man, this guy's kind of crazy. Um, I think I'm going to check up on him. The Bible actually tells us that that's our job. In Acts 17.11, the Bereans are talked about, and they were, they were a community that Paul went to as a, as a missionary. And when he stopped in, he says, they were more noble of character because every day... After Paul would teach them, they would go home and search the scriptures to see if what he said was true. What that means is whether it's Terry, whether it's Kyle, whether it's the other Kyle, whether it's me, whoever is teaching you, your job is to make sure it's consistent. Don't follow me. Follow where I'm following Jesus. That's what I'm going to be doing. Okay, so we went through what does it say, what does it mean, does it fit, and the final one, the most important part, is what does it mean to me? You see, we can't end without applying it to ourselves. 
We need an application, something that makes it powerful, that makes it actually personal, that brings it into our lives. We can't skip it. It's like smelling your toothpaste in the morning and then not smelling it, or smelling your breath in the morning and not using your toothpaste. That one didn't work quite right. (laughs) It doesn't do any good unless you actually brush your teeth. The Bible, if we believe it's real, we're going to do it. We're going to carry it out. If we believe God has something for us, it's something here. This is where the acronym SPACE PETS, and those of you who don't know what that is, I'm really sorry. I don't have time to go through nine different pieces. But it's a bunch of questions that we can ask. Whether there's a sin to confess, whether there's a promise to claim, blah, blah, blah. These are all things that allow us to bring it personally back to us. The question you have after going through those is to ask yourself, which one does God want me to work on? Now, you cannot do them all. I cannot go through here and say, oh, there's only five character traits to change? Well, I'll be caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous this week. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail miserably. You need to find something that is personal for you, that is practical and able to be done, so it is also possible, God, I'm not going to move the moon this week, And that it's provable. If Terry were to come to you and say, how did you actually do this? You'd have to be able to point. I can't just say, well, I was a much more compassionate person. No. It has to be something you can measure and point to. The challenge that we have with these four questions is that we know how to study the Bible now. We have to actually go and do it. You see, four questions. What does it say? What does it mean? Does it fit? And what does it mean for me? Simply bring us through a Bible study and allow us to take God's word and use it in our lives. That's the challenge that you have today. I got to watch it this week. I was driving my son Caleb to school and we were talking, we were having this awesome Bible theology conversation. And I got done, I was telling my wife about it. She goes, that is great. It's because he was studying his Bible this morning. You see, we've given him the challenge of reading a chapter 15 minutes a day and answering a couple of questions about it. And so he comes out excited. He's got something to talk about. That's what we're looking at. That's what we all want to be at. That's where we want to be. One chapter, 15 minutes a day, and answering some simple questions. Let's pray.